This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In just a few short weeks, on March 4th, 2018, the 90th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony will take place in Los Angeles, California. The Academy Awards, also known as the Oscars, is of course the most important awards ceremony in Hollywood that recognizes the best the film industry has to offer, from best lighting to screenwriting and musical scores. The most anticipated awards of the evening are always the Best Actor and Best Film Awards. The Academy Awards began in 1929, and the ceremony was initially held in the Hollywood Roosevelt Theater. It has moved to several venues over the years, including the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from 1969 to 2001. It has been held for the last 15 years at the Dolby Theater, formerly known as the Kodak Theater. The ceremony has been televised since 1953 and can now also be streamed live online. But the Oscars also has a darker history. By chance while researching other cases, I came across more than a handful of Academy Award-related crimes. So this year, in the lead-up to the Oscars, I've decided to share with you a few of those stories. I may even have a special guest or two. Celebrities? Actors? Hollywood insiders? Perhaps all three. You'll just have to come back to find out. I hope you'll enjoy the new series, Academy Award-winning crimes. This is Chapter 1, The Dog Day Afternoon Bank Heist. At the 1976 Academy Awards, the film Dog Day Afternoon was nominated for six Oscars, Best Film Editing, Best Writing Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Director, and Best Picture. In the end, it took away only one of the little gold men. Frank Pearson received the award for Best Original Screenplay. The movie Dog Day Afternoon was based on the true story of a bank robbery that took place in Brooklyn, New York in 1972. But this is so much more than a bank robbery. This case has so many interesting and unlikely details that if you didn't know it, you would believe it is purely a work of Hollywood fiction. But as the saying goes, the truth is often stranger than fiction, and it's certainly true in this case. But I swear to you, I'm not making this up. If you have never seen Dog Day Afternoon, it is now considered a classic of American cinema. I remember watching it on television when I was a kid. There are some scenes that you just never forget. It has everything. Suspense, a peculiar backstory, great characters, and even a lot of humor. The entire film unfolds over one day, August 22, 1972, the day of the bank robbery. When I first watched this movie, and for years afterwards, I was unaware that it was based on a true story. When I found out, I had to know the rest of the story, and then I had to dig some more to make sure this incredible story was really true. This is the true story of Dog Day Afternoon. August 22, 1972, was a hot and humid day in Brooklyn, New York. A car carrying three men idled on the corner of Avenue P and East 3rd Street in front of the Chase Manhattan Bank. One of the men, 27-year-old John Wadowitz, a short, dark-haired man with a slight build, walked into the bank carrying a long cardboard box. He approached a counter where pens and forms are provided for bank customers. He was shortly followed by two younger men, 20-year-old Bob Westenberg, and 18-year-old Sal Naturali. Bobby walked up to John and said something to him, and then soon left the bank. 
Sal walked over to the new accounts desk and took a seat. The bank manager, Robert Barrett, was seated at the desk. Hanging up the phone, Barrett looked up to see Sal pointing a gun at him. Freeze, the young sandy-haired boy said to him. This is a holdup. I'm not alone. At the same time, the head teller, Shirley Ball, looked up from the teller window to see a short man pull a shotgun from inside a cardboard box and approach her with an attache case. He came around to her side of the teller area and quickly began filling up the case with cash from the registers. Just do what I tell you, he said to the tellers. We'll be in and out of here in five minutes. Nobody will get hurt if you just do what you're told. John Stanley Joseph Wadowitz was born in New York City in 1945 to a Polish father and an Italian-American mother. His mother, Terry, would say that John was always a good boy. He played baseball and did well in school, always getting good grades. His mother raised him Catholic, as she was a devout churchgoer. John's father was reliable and constant, but a silent figure in the home. His mother, Terry, was the person who ran the household and kept the family going. She was outspoken and could curse like a sailor when she felt she needed to. John took after his mother in his outspoken and gregarious nature. John had a Polish surname inherited from his father, but looked more like his Italian mother and shared her same family and cultural values. John was the second of three sons. He had a younger brother, Michael, and an older brother, Tony. Terry says that her son, Tony, was born prematurely and began having seizures as a toddler. He was diagnosed with epilepsy. He was also developmentally disabled. For some reason, the state decided his parents could not care for him, and he was removed from their home and put in a state institution. This was devastating for the family, and for John especially. For his entire life, John would make sure to stay connected to Tony. Later, when Tony was placed in a group home for the disabled as an adult, John would visit him and take him out to Coney Island and other day trips. After he graduated from high school, John got a job at Chase Manhattan Bank. There he met Carmen Bifulco, who worked as a typist. On their first date, Carmen says John showed up with two other girls. One of you is going to become Mrs. John Wadowitz, he told them. Surprisingly, none of the girls was angry about this odd date. That was just John, Carmen says. He was charming and fun, and he could get away with it. She said he was always open and honest. He never tried to hide anything he was doing. John and Carmen began seeing each other and quickly became a couple. Right away, he wanted to get married. Carmen's parents didn't want her to marry him. They didn't like John. They told her to wait. Then in 1966, John was drafted and sent to serve in Vietnam. John wanted them to get married before he left, but Carmen's parents encouraged her to wait until after he returned. They hoped I wouldn't return, at least alive, John said. I knew that's what they were hoping for. While in basic training, John says he experienced his first homosexual encounter. He would make it no secret that he enjoyed a very active sex life. He'd never considered having sex with men before, he said, but when it happened, he realized he enjoyed it as much as any other kind of sex. John considered himself a Goldwater Republican before he went to Vietnam, and so agreed with the military action taking place there. That was until he was sent to Da Nang in 1967. There, 90% of his fellow soldiers were killed in action. At that point, John says, he became a McCarthy peacenik opposing the war. John made it back from Vietnam in 1967, and he and Carmen were married. They had a big Catholic wedding, but on their wedding night, they almost split up. 
John got in a fight with Carmen's father about who was paying for the wedding, and their marriage almost ended before it began. In short order, John and Carmen had two children, but the marriage was rocky. Within two years, they separated. Shortly after leaving his marriage, John became active in the gay community. The Stonewall Riots of 1969 took place the same summer that John left Carmen. A police raid took place on June 28th at the Stonewall Inn in Greenwich Village. The Stonewall Inn was owned by the Genovese crime family and catered to the gay population as well as street kids. It was the only bar in New York that allowed same-sex couples to dance together. Raids on the place by the NYPD happened frequently, but there was always a warning announced ahead of time. On the early morning hours of June 28th, however, no warning came, and the patrons believed the cops were being particularly unfair and rough, so this time they fought back. Several days of rioting ensued, with injuries to both cops and citizens. The civil rights movement of the 1960s had inspired the gay population to fight against laws that were discriminatory. Soon after the Stonewall riots, grassroots organizations sprung up to continue the fight, including the Gay Activist Alliance that began in Greenwich Village. The members met in an old firehouse and held meetings and fundraising dances that thousands of people attended. One of the GAA's main goals was to encourage homosexuals to come out of the closet. They wanted the general population to know that many people they knew, their friends, neighbors, and family members, were gay. They hoped in this way they would gain more acceptance from their families and communities and more support for the passage of equal rights. John became an active member of the GAA. At this time, he began going by the name Little John Basso. Basso was his mother's maiden name. Everyone knew Little John. He was very active and outspoken in the movement. He also wasn't shy about his sexuality. He was most likely bisexual. He would still see and sleep with his wife Carmen, even while dating men. But in June of 1971, John met Ernest, or Ernie, Aaron. Ernie was a beautiful statuesque transvestite who also went by the name Elizabeth, or Liz Eden. Liz caught John's eye when he saw her on a parade float at the Feast of San Gennaro. He began to court her, and he fell in love soon after they met. Before long, John asked Liz to marry him, even though it was not legal for two men to marry. John was also still legally married to Carmen at the time. Note. John always referred to Liz as Ernie and used the pronouns he and him because she herself identified as a female and used the name Liz. I will use this name and the corresponding gender pronouns she and her to identify her in this episode. I will only use the name Ernie when quoting John. Liz didn't want to get married, but John says he eventually persuaded her. Within six months of meeting each other, they had a formal marriage ceremony and reception at a cafe in New York. Liz wore a white wedding gown, and John wore his army dress uniform. John's mother attended the wedding along with hundreds of guests, both gay and straight. They had a Roman Catholic ceremony that was performed by a gay priest that was later excommunicated from the church. But like his marriage to Carmen, before long, the couple separated. Their most frequent argument was centered around the fact that Liz wanted to undergo gender reassignment surgery, or what was commonly known then as a sex change operation. This term is used by both John and Liz. John didn't want Liz to have the surgery, and she felt increasingly desperate to have it done. John was concerned about the money, and it seems didn't like the idea that Liz's body would change so drastically and permanently. Liz became depressed and suicidal. She made several attempts to kill herself by both overdosing on pills and cutting her wrists. 
John finally agreed to help Liz obtain the surgery. But when he couldn't secure the money they needed by her birthday on August 19, 1972, she once again tried to kill herself. She overdosed and was found and taken to the hospital where she was revived. She was then admitted to the psychiatric ward at Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn for her own safety. On August 21st, John arrived at the hospital to bring Liz home, but the doctors there would not allow him to see her. They also told him that she would not be released and may be locked in the hospital indefinitely, as they did not know when she would be considered cured. John grew desperate. He was afraid Liz, the person he considered his true wife and the love of his life, would succeed in taking her own life if he could not find a way to pay for her gender reassignment surgery. As he would later write to the New York Times, I began to plan what I felt was necessary to save the life of someone I truly and deeply loved. As it says in the Bible, no greater love hath a man than to lie down his life for another. But John was desperate for more than the ability to help save Liz. He also had become convinced that he had tumors in his stomach and was probably dying. This turned out to be untrue. Perhaps he was feeling ill due to stress. It is unknown. He also always wanted to be important. He had a personality that was larger than life, but to be honest, his life was pretty small. He married his sweetheart Carmen and started a family, but soon found himself no different than any other Joe on the block. They lived paycheck to paycheck, and life was far from glamorous. He began to feel more special when he immersed himself in the gay community. But truth be told, he wasn't very politically motivated. He liked sex and he liked feeling special. In one quote, John says, anyone could be heterosexual, but it takes someone special to be gay. And John always wanted to consider himself special. He also liked the attention he got for being an outspoken character and the life of the party. Even when talking about his wedding to Liz, he mentions that she bought the most expensive wedding dress she could find because she wanted to be the center of attention. That's why he said he wore his uniform with all his medals. It was a rivalry. He said this is how it was for them. Each wanted to be the star. But there's only one star, he concluded, and that's me. Perhaps he finally felt special when his wedding became the talk of the town. It was even filmed by the GAA for their archives. He married the prettiest, most glamorous transvestite in Greenwich Village, and all eyes were on him. He wanted to prove that he could do what everyone told him he couldn't, just like when he married Carmen. He won, but his victory soon fell flat in the light of reality. John wanted money to pay for Liz's surgery and to have funds for a do-over. He fantasized that he would take her overseas for the surgery, and then together they would live a lavish lifestyle somewhere tropical. He could also provide for Carmen and his two children. Then he could prove to Carmen, Liz, and everyone that he was somebody. So on August 21st, John called on two friends of his to help carry out his plan. He offered Bobby Westenberg, age 20, $50,000 to help. Bobby agreed. He also called his friend, Sel Natarali. He knew Sel from his old neighborhood. He was only 18, but had been in and out of trouble since the age of 11. He'd been locked up in juvenile facilities for charges like truancy and theft. His most serious offense was staying overnight in a department store and raiding the registers for cash before leaving in the morning with two portable television sets. Sal also signed on to help John. Like John often said, he could always persuade people to do what he wanted. That evening, John, Bobby, and Sal rented a motel room and planned out the bank robbery. 
they were able to secure two guns. They also went to see the film The Godfather at the 42nd Street Theater. The movie had just been released earlier that year. The next day, they drove to a bank in Queens. John put the shotgun into a long cardboard box. Some reported it as a florist box, but he would later describe it as a giant Wrigley's gum box. I guess like a large novelty package of gum, which sounds ridiculous, but this isn't the only incredible detail, as you will see. Sal had the second gun secured in his waistband. Just as they entered the bank, John lost his grip on the box, and it slipped with a gun falling out and clattering to the floor. He quickly scooped it up, and all three turned around quickly and left the bank. The startled bank customers were left wondering what kind of joke had just happened. They next picked a bank located in the neighborhood of Howard Beach. But as they walked in, Bobby was recognized by a friend of his mother's who greeted him. Again, they left the bank before carrying out their plan. Finally, they decided on the Chase Manhattan Bank, located at Avenue P and East 3rd Street in Brooklyn. But as soon as they entered, Bobby had second thoughts. He approached John just as he was about to announce that the bank was being robbed, and he told John he couldn't do it. Bobby quickly left the bank. Now only John and Sal were left inside. It was just about 3 p.m. when they made their move. John announced the holdup and trained his gun on the tellers, while Sal kept the bank manager and security guard in his sights. John had worked at a Chase Manhattan bank branch and knew their procedures. He quickly took the head teller, Shirley Ball, to each register. He made sure she didn't trip any alarms or put any marked bills into his case. John collected almost $38,000 in cash and $175,000 in traveler's checks, but it was a much smaller take than he'd expected. Meanwhile, the phone rang. John told manager Robert Barrett to answer it and act natural, while Sal kept the gun pointed at him. It was the personnel manager from a nearby Chase Bank. He requested that one of Barrett's tellers be transferred to the other branch, a routine request. To his surprise, Barrett told him no. Instead, he suggested the name of another teller, except this teller, the personnel manager knew, had been fired months earlier. Thinking something was odd, he asked Barrett if something was wrong at his branch. Yep, Barrett answered before hanging up. The personnel manager called the police to report a possible holdup. While John told the bank employees that they would be in and out of the bank in five minutes, it took much longer than he expected to collect the money out of the registers. There were seven female bank tellers, as well as the bank manager and a security guard, Calvin Jones, in the building. The bank manager had tipped up the caller that a robbery was in progress, and police units were dispatched. In the meantime, the robbers were busy trying to secure the employees inside the bank vault before leaving. As they made their way to the front of the bank, they peeked outside to see if the coast was clear. But it was far from clear. They could see at least a dozen officers behind police cars and on fire escapes and rooftops on the opposite side of the street. They had been caught. John began to panic, yelling at the manager and tellers, asking who had tipped off the cops. They all played dumb. Until now, the robbers had been calm, but now the bank employees began to worry that they might all be killed by the panicked robbers. A radio was playing in the bank, and they began to hear live news coverage of the bank robbery. More police units continued to arrive outside. Finally, breaking the tension, one of the tellers asked to use the restroom. Unsure of what to do, but told by the woman that she needed to go urgently, 
John walked her to the restroom, checking it out before allowing her to enter. John began to chuckle at the absurdity. Before long, he calmed down and was now his normal charming self. The trapped employees began to laugh and think maybe things weren't so bad and everything would turn out okay. The bank robbers would have to see reason soon and give themselves up, right, they thought. The phone inside the bank rang again, and they allowed Shirley Ball to answer it. It was one of the teller's husbands calling. They allowed her to take the call to assure him that everyone was okay. Before long, John allowed the free use of the telephones. Some of the employees made calls out to loved ones, while other phone calls continued to come into the bank. Reporters began to call the bank to speak with the robbers. Even people who'd seen the news reports started calling the bank. Some gave advice, while others made threats. At this point, the bank hostages realized for sure that these were not seasoned criminals. It was obvious that they did not have a well-thought-out plan and had made a mess of the robbery and the getaway. In fact, John Wadowitz had only first thought of robbing a bank a few hours before he'd entered Chase Manhattan and did very little planning. John now decided that he wanted to talk to the police. Speaking to them by phone, he said that they would negotiate for the hostages. In return for their safe release, he wanted a car to take him and Sal to the airport where they could board a flight to another country. But first, he wanted his wife brought to the bank. By that evening, over 200 police officers had arrived and surrounded the bank. SWAT team members and other officers were positioned on the roof of each of the buildings on the block. As well, nearby residents and then more citizens arrived to observe the police action. It was a warm August night, and a real-life movie of the week was playing out right in front of them. Before the sun set, thousands of onlookers would arrive. Police erected barricades at both ends of the block to keep observers away. The New York City Chief of Detectives, Louis Cattell, arrived to try and negotiate with the bank robbers. He first reached John by phone and then urged him to come outside to speak to him. John finally agreed, warning him that his partner was inside the bank with a gun held on the nine hostages. He told Cattell that he would not hesitate to shoot if the cops tried anything. As John emerged from the bank, he saw hundreds of cops and thousands of onlookers surrounding the bank. As he exited, the crowd went crazy. It sounded like the cheer of the crowd when a rock band or celebrity takes the stage. John began playing to the crowd, yelling at the pigs to get back, to drop their weapons, daring them to try and shoot him, etc. The crowd continued to cheer, seemingly on the bank robber's side. During this time in 1972, the mood in America was decidedly anti-authority. A very unpopular war had just been fought in Vietnam, and there had been widespread protests. The civil rights movement and the gay rights movement added to the protesters and the anti-establishment mentality. The public at that time began rooting more for the anti-heroes of the era. John picked up on this vibe, and when he saw the crowd was on his side, he increased his swagger. He began criticizing the cops, telling them, you want to kill me so bad, you can taste it. The cheers got louder the more John paced in front of the bank, yelling and putting down the police. John began chanting, Attica, Attica, and the crowd joined in. The chant was in reference to the Attica State Prison Riot that occurred in September 1971. Prisoners at the Attica Correctional Facility in New York rebelled when their demands for better living conditions and political rights went unmet. Over 1,000 prisoners rioted, taking 42 members of the staff hostage and gaining control of the prison for four days. State police moved in, and 43 people were killed in the melee, including 10 correctional officers and civilians, and 33 inmates. 
Negotiators continued to communicate with John throughout the night. At one point, he requested food to be delivered to the bank. Three pizzas were delivered, and John sent Shirley Bass outside to pay the delivery person. On John's instructions, she threw $1,000 in $1 bills onto the sidewalk. The crowd went nuts. Shirley would later say that she could have easily fled the bank at that point, but decided not to. We were all in this together, she would later say, meaning the employees and the robbers. She was the supervisor of the other six women inside, and she would not leave them, she said. Barrett, the bank manager, was diabetic, and the negotiators asked John to release him to be checked out by a doctor. He was allowed to meet the doctor outside of the bank to be examined in a van. At that time, he could have left as well. But Barrett told the police that he felt fine and also declined to leave the bank. Barrett would tell John Wadowitz, I'm supposed to hate you guys, but I've had more laughs tonight than I've had in weeks. Shirley Ball would characterize her captors this way. I really liked them both. They tried to be nice, except when they were cornered. They were such above-board guys, they even told us they would kill us if they had to. One of the strangest hijack attempts to date began when two gunmen held up a bank in Brooklyn, New York. The gunmen got $29,000, but before they could leave, police moved in and the bank robbers seized eight hostages. With his partner inside pointing a shotgun at eight employees, the other robber spent much of his time pacing outside the bank, either negotiating with police or screaming at them to back off. Police in turn tried to keep the pressure down by ordering the hundreds of spectators to move. A more visible bank robber is 27-year-old John Wojtowicz, an out-of-work New York City resident and an admitted homosexual who left his wife and two children three years ago. After John asked for his wife to be brought to the bank, they found out he meant Ernie Aaron, who was currently locked in the psychiatric ward. In one of the more bizarre scenes, in a series of bizarre scenes during the entire ordeal, Ernie, or Liz, was walked to the makeshift police headquarters wearing a hospital gown, and looking thin and unwell. In exchange for Liz being brought to the scene, John released one hostage, the security guard, Calvin Jones. The police had set up a communication center in a nearby barbershop. Liz was taken there first to make phone contact with John. She spoke with him, but refused to see him, saying she was afraid. He pleaded with her, saying he'd held up the bank for her so she could get her operation. His plan was to demand for the two of them to be flown to Denmark, where she could get the surgery. She told him he should surrender and refused to have any further contact with him. Liz was then quickly returned to the hospital. Instead, he asked for another friend named Pat Coppola to be brought to the bank. Pat, or Patsy as he was known, was one of John's gay friends from the village. He arrived at the door of the bank, and John stuck his head out and gave him a long kiss while a crowd hooted. Patsy then left. John was certainly enjoying all the attention. The bank robbery was such a big story that evening that it even preempted television coverage of the Republican National Convention, where Richard Nixon was scheduled to make a speech. The FBI had now been called in to try and negotiate with John. They decided to cut the phone lines as well as the lights and air conditioning to the bank. It was a sweltering August night, and everyone's patient was beginning to wear thin, including the hostages. Shirley Ball complained to the FBI to hurry up and make a move, and meet their captors' demands. It was 2 a.m., and they had been held hostage for going on 12 hours. Enough is enough, Shirley complained to the FBI agent. Do you want to trade eight lives for two? Don't stretch our luck. Give them their demands. By 3 a.m., the FBI agreed, 
and told John they had ordered a plane to be ready to meet them at John F. Kennedy Airport. A limousine was on the way to transport him and the hostages there. In exchange for the limo's arrival, they released one of the female tellers. The FBI had planned to take the robbers down as they exited the bank to enter the limo. But John made sure he and Sell were surrounded by the remaining hostages between the bank and the car, so the agents were unable to make a move. At 3.50 a.m., the bank robbers and hostages were driven to Kennedy Airport. An FBI agent, only identified as Murphy, was the driver. In the first row behind him were three hostages. In the middle row of seats, Sell was flanked by two more hostages. He had the gun pointed at the driver. Finally, in the last row of seats, John sat in the middle with the last two hostages on either side of him. The bank manager, Barrett, held onto the attache case with the money. Several more cars carrying police officers, FBI agents, and family members of the hostages followed behind as the limo made its way down Rockaway Boulevard towards the airport. When they reached the airport, the limo stopped on the runway to wait for the plane to arrive. It was still dark. Another of the bank tellers was released immediately upon their arrival as agreed. Another one was to be released as they boarded the plane. As they waited, John asked Agent Murphy if they could get some food on the plane. Murphy replied that he would find out and stepped out of the car. He returned with two other FBI agents who then flanked both sides of the limousine. The chief of detectives, Louis Cattell, positioned himself behind the rear of the car. At that moment, the plane began to taxi up towards them. Sal, feeling nervous, asked Shirley to move closer to him. When Murphy talked to the two agents before returning to the car, they worked out a signal. When they heard Murphy say, is there going to be any food on the plane? That was a signal that he could take Sal because he'd observed that his gun was still positioned high. Murphy had told Sal on the way to the airport not to point his weapon directly at him because he was afraid they would hit a bump and it might accidentally go off. If the other agent, Richard Baker, responded yes, it meant that he could cover John. As he stood by the open driver's door, Murphy gave the signal at the same time he reached for a gun that had been concealed under the front floor mat. He aimed over the first row of hostages and fired one shot into Sal's chest, killing him. Startled, John froze, and Baker quickly grabbed the barrel of John's gun. John immediately surrendered. The hostages ran from the limo, scattering onto the runway. John Wadowitz was taken to the FBI headquarters in Manhattan. He signed a full confession in exchange for a plea deal, a deal he says the court did not honor. On April 23, 1973, he was sentenced to 20 years in Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary. John would report that his time in prison was rough because of his celebrity status due to all the press coverage the bank robbery received. He also said that he was targeted by inmates and discriminated against by prison authorities because he was gay. After the bank robbery and his arrest, the Gay Activist Alliance distanced themselves from their former friend and supporter. They pointed to the fact that he was complicit in terrorizing innocent people, the hostages, while their organization had always stressed nonviolence. As a result of his actions, they said, his friend Sal Naturali was killed. They also said that John was very clearly mentally ill and needed help. Although Carmen and John had been separated since 1969, they were still legally married. John would say he had two wives, a female wife and a male wife. Carmen considered herself to be John's wife until 1978, 
when they officially divorced. Carmen continued to visit John in jail, as well as write letters and send items he requested. Some of John's friends said he liked to play his two wives off of each other. He liked them to be in competition and enjoyed the attention, they said. Hollywood came knocking on John's door, wanting to produce a movie about the Chase Manhattan robbery. Warner Brothers offered to pay him for the rights to his story. He said he didn't want to, but Liz did, and ultimately he agreed. He was paid $7,500 for the story, equivalent to about $40,000 today, and promised 1% of the movie's net profit. Some of the money was used to pay for Liz Eden's sex reassignment surgery, which she underwent in 1973. In March of that year, Liz contacted John to tell him that she no longer wanted to see him. The following month, he was sentenced to 20 years in prison and tried to kill himself. Liz went on to grant interviews on several television talk shows after her surgery and became a minor celebrity. The movie Dog Day Afternoon was released in September 1975. John was given a private screening in the prison on October 3rd. The other inmates were also given permission to watch it at a special screening that weekend. The character Sonny, based on John, was played by Al Pacino, who bore a striking resemblance to John Wadowitz. Sel Naturali was played by John Cazale, who had played Fredo in The Godfather, the movie John had gone to see just before robbing the bank. Cazale did not resemble the real Sal Naturali, who had only been 18 years old. Cazale was then 37. Chris Sarandon played the character Leon Shermer, who was based on Ernie slash Liz. Sarandon, along with Pacino, was nominated for an Oscar for his role in the film. It was directed by Sidney Lumet, who also directed Serpico starring Al Pacino, and Network, which won four Academy Awards. Dog Day Afternoon was also nominated for Best Director and Best Picture, but only won a single Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. It was written by Frank Pearson. After watching the film, John had mixed reactions and wrote an article that he sent to the New York Times with his critique. While Pearson tried several times to meet with John while writing the screenplay, he refused. Now John said that Pearson wrote an inaccurate portrayal of events. He didn't like that the movie portrayed his wife Carmen as a loudmouth and a shrew, who, he thought they implied, had driven him into the arms of Ernie. In fact, he and Carmen had been separated for two years before he even met Ernie, he pointed out. He also wanted the public to know that Carmen was nothing like the awful woman in the movie. He also didn't like the way his mother was portrayed. His mother was a strong and respectable woman, and the mother in the film was whiny and overprotective, nothing at all like his mother Terry, he said. The film showed a conversation between him and his mother while he was holding the hostages, and that never happened. His mother had been brought to the scene that day, but John had refused to come outside to speak with her. He also said the movie didn't really answer the question as to why he robbed the bank. It wasn't just about obtaining money for the sex change operation, he explained, but it was a desperate attempt to save the life of a person he loved. This was never fully explained in the movie, John said. But the scene in the movie he objected to the most strongly was the one in which it was hinted that he'd made a deal with the FBI to betray his partner's cell. He called it untrue and despicable. However, he felt the casting, other than the part of his wife and mother, was fantastic. He felt Al Pacino's portrayal of him was the best acting he'd ever done and that his characterization of him was flawless. He also had high praise for Chris Sarandon, who played the character based on Liz slash Ernie. He felt Sarandon captured him perfectly, and the scene between Sonny and Leon on the phone moved him to tears. 
but overall, he thought the movie was, quote, in essence, a piece of garbage, and he felt deeply hurt by it. The critics and the public did not agree. Not only was it a smash hit at the box office, but it was critically acclaimed as well. The film only cost $1.8 million to produce and grossed over $50 million at the box office. John met a man in prison named George Heath, who was a jailhouse lawyer. George helped John with his legal filings, including a discrimination lawsuit against the prison, and later a lawsuit against Warner Brothers for money he said he was promised and didn't receive. John then also married George, and although not legally married, John would consider him to be his husband. George also served as a protector for John in prison, as he was harassed and assaulted by other inmates when he first arrived. John spent a large portion of his time in prison in segregation for his safety. George also helped him file an appeal that was successful in getting John's sentence reduced. As a result, he was released on parole in 1978, after serving only five years. John first moved into a halfway house for parolees in Manhattan, before being released and returning to his parents' home. His mother had continued to support her son, visiting him in prison, and taking him in once he was released. He and Carmen were finally legally divorced soon after his release. John was required to find a job as a condition of his parole, but had a hard time getting work. An ex-inmate program found him odd jobs at first. John applied to be a security guard at Chase Manhattan Bank. He was now calling himself the dog, and he told the bank manager at his interview, who's going to try and rob this bank when the dog is guarding it? They declined to hire him. He began making money off his notoriety. Many people in New York knew who he was and recognized him immediately. He began taking pictures with fans in front of the bank for a small fee. He even sometimes wore a shirt that read, I robbed this bank, while standing in front of Chase Manhattan. Warner Brothers finally settled the lawsuit with John, paying him $100,000. John continued to live with his mother and hang out in Greenwich Village. He became a self-described protector of the transsexual and transgender community. He spent time in the bars and cafes in the area and Christopher Street Park. He also reconnected with his brother Tony and would check him out of his group home for day trips. He was sent back to prison for two parole violations and spent a total of two more years before finally being released permanently. Liz Eden married and divorced once more, before dying in 1987 of AIDS-related pneumonia. John said she had been the love of his life, whom he never got over. He delivered the eulogy at her funeral. In 2003, two filmmakers, Alison Berg and Frank Karadrin, began shooting a documentary based on the life of John Wadowitz. Titled The Dog, it was finally completed and shown at the Toronto International Film Festival 10 years later in 2013. There are numerous fascinating interviews in it with Liz Eden, Terry Basso Wadowitz, some of the bank hostages, members of the Greenwich Village gay community, and most notably, John Wadowitz himself. In the latter part of the film, you can see John after he has been diagnosed with cancer. He is frail, but still has a larger-than-life personality. His mother is still a strong presence in his life, and their close bond is obvious. She is also a character herself, and is as outspoken as her son. John, who always wanted to be a star and a winner, said he felt like he'd achieved his goals. An Academy Award-winning movie was made about him, and Liz did get her sex change operation. In that respect, he says, I won. John Wadowitz died of cancer in 2006, 
at the age of 60. That will do it for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We have new perks on Patreon, including exclusive merchandise. To become a supporter to receive merchandise, bonus content, and more, go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. I'm doing another giveaway of Studio Sweden headphones. Studio Sweden makes premium headphones with studio-quality sound and a classic Scandinavian design. I have a pair of their wonderful Regent over-ear headphones to give away this time. You will find all the information as well as how to enter to win in a bonus episode releasing this week on the regular feed. Make sure you're subscribed to Once Upon a Crime to hear that episode this week and get all the details to enter. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Music